Welcome to Critical Value, the podcast from the Urban Institute that explores issues of significance for research, policy, and people. I'm your host, Justin Milner. If you've listened to our last several Critical Value shows, you know we're doing something a little different right now. We're taking a look at how the pandemic is impacting families and communities in major ways and keeping an eye squarely on what it means for the most vulnerable Americans. This is our sixth in the COVID-19 series. And in past episodes, we've talked about the pandemic in jobs, housing, and economic stability. And today, we're going to focus on another place where the crisis has disrupted the ability for families to address one of our most basic needs. Well, one of the consequences of all the closures, cancellations, and layoffs is that some people might not have enough food to eat. Many people live with food insecurity all the time, and this crisis will likely push many of them over the edge. Lines are stretching for miles in state after state as the millions of Americans now living on the edge are facing disruptions in the food distribution chain. The challenge is expected to get worse. Across the U.S., the COVID-19 crisis is also a hunger crisis. According to the U.S. Department of Agriculture, about 11% of U.S. households were food insecure at some point in 2018. The coronavirus pandemic has made that much worse for many Americans. As you heard, the official term for families facing these types of challenges is food insecurity. So what exactly does that mean? The generally accepted definition of food insecurity among policymakers and academics is that it's uncertain and unstable supply of food in order to achieve an adequate diet for healthy living. That's Elaine Waxman, an expert here at the Urban Institute. Her research focuses on the safety net and its impact on food insecurity and nutrition. What that may look like may be uncertainty about being able to buy more food if you run out or not being able to buy a balanced diet, meaning, you know, maybe having to rely heavily on very cheap, calorie-dense options, very limited variety in order to just have food on the table. In the more severe manifestations, it looks like reducing your intake, cutting the size of your meals, skipping meals, or in the worst case scenario, you know, going whole days without meals. Food is obviously an essential part of life, but it can also be a place where people look to cut back when times get tight. Food is uh, one of the first things that goes in a family's budget. You know, if you need to pay the rent, it's easier to trim down on what you buy at the grocery store than it is to trim down on the rent and hope that you're going to keep your apartment. As you can imagine, the short-term issues associated with food insecurity and hunger are problematic and difficult, but Elaine says experiencing food insecurity can have a significant impact on your health over the long term as well. So food insecurity is associated with fair and poor health in children, greater odds of hospitalization, higher rates of asthma, cognitive and developmental challenges, In teenagers, it's associated with depression, other behavioral health disorders, and higher rates of suicidal ideation. In adults, it's associated with higher rates of chronic disease, like diabetes and hypertension, which, of course, are also risk factors for not doing well with COVID. So in the best of times, food insecurity is a public health issue. It's not about social welfare. It's literally about our our individual and communal health. And the health of many communities is at risk right now. 
Elaine says that during the first few weeks of the pandemic, urban research found food insecurity levels rapidly increasing for millions of Americans. From Urban's own health reform monitoring survey, it looks like about one in five families are experiencing food insecurity, uh, at least in those first several weeks. And for families with children, it's higher. It's about one in four. And the picture gets worse when you disaggregate the data. And then when you unpack that further by race and ethnicity, it becomes even more alarming. So for families with children who are Black families, that rate is about 37%. For Latinx families, it's almost 40. And if you're a Latinx family who has a non-citizen household member, it's about 43%, which are really jaw-dropping numbers. The depth of food insecurity that families are facing is really concerning. One of the things we learned from the Health Reform Monitoring Survey is what we call very low food security. Those conditions where you're really reducing intake is also on the rise and very concerning. And Black families with children appear to have the highest rates of very low food security, which means that the depth of food insecurity, the extent of hardship is really pronounced for those families. Yet, despite these challenges, Elaine says that some people are skeptical on whether this need is real. Sometimes I've, I've heard people comment, well, if you give away free food, people will just show up. We shouldn't necessarily take that as a barometer of need. And I would say, if you're unemployed and you have very little money, why would you be burning your gas money to sit in line for hours for a box of food? So I think sometimes it's easy for people to trivialize the importance of that box of food. But right now, that box of food literally may be what you have to put on your family's table. And the organizations that are putting those boxes of food on the tables are a critical frontline response to meet the high demand of people who are dealing with food insecurity right now. Got my grandson with me over here. And he asked me what we're going to eat for breakfast and stuff. I said, hey... I don't know what to tell you. Whatever you can find, I tell. I'm used to being able to handle myself, take care of everything. And now I find myself having to, you know, look for help and wait in these long lines just to get by. We just have so much less income that we need this basic assistance, you know. And it's invaluable to know that we have these resources that we're not going to be going hungry. Three Square Food Bank in Nevada is one of the many organizations in the country providing food relief to their community. Three Square's mission is to provide wholesome food to hungry people while pursuing a hunger-free community in Southern Nevada. That's Jody Tyson. She's the vice president of strategic initiatives at Three Square. Their mission is to provide food for people today by feeding people through a network of 160-plus agencies and delivery services and advocate for policies in the future that address the root causes of food insecurity. 3Square has seen a sharp increase in food insecurity in their area, and it cuts across all groups. We do experience food insecurity, certainly in all counties in our state, and in all zip codes in our counties, food insecurity knows no political or social boundaries. Jody says there's an important misconception about food banks and who they serve. So many people that we serve are our neighbors, your neighbors, my neighbors, people that work before COVID were working full-time jobs 
who were still just struggling to make ends meet. And the reason why people sometimes experience bouts of food insecurity have nothing to do with the fact that they do or don't have a full-time job, but is more about the fact that there are so many other underlying issues. And that means that food insecurity can be a sort of symptom of other forms of insecurity, economic, health, employment. It might be the amount of money that they make in their full-time job, whether or not they have health benefits, whether or not they have somebody living in their house who experiences a disability or they don't have health insurance. Those are the things that often will bring people to the food bank looking and seeking assistance. Of course, we do have a lot of people in our community who are homeless, who are housing fragile. Of course, those things do exist in our community. But by and large, the people who seek assistance of the food bank are people that used to even be donors to the food bank, who then found themselves in times of strife and struggle. And a key point is that any of us can experience these kind of emergencies. Most of us will experience some kind of financial crisis in our lifetime. And the act of actually reaching out and seeking assistance should be lifted up. It should be lifted up as a positive experience because that's what the community safety net is here for. And when I participate in the community safety net, I am much more empathetic than in the future for others who need that lift up in our community. And so I think that the act of doing to seek help is also the same as acting to give help too. And we need to really honor those experiences on both sides. And so now in the context of this pandemic, many families are dealing with a host of challenges, right? From decreased income to unemployment to COVID health issues. And the demand has been huge for food bank support. Jody says Three Square had to adapt quickly, shutting down some food banks for health safety reasons, but also setting up mobile distribution centers to meet people where they are. In terms of the mobile distributions, those were the emergency ones that we set up because so many of our agencies were closing. We've done over 150 mobile distributions in that 60-day time period and have served about 300,000 individuals that have come through. And that is representative of about 70,000, a little over 70,000 households. So it's a, a large volume in a very short or small number of distributions. Jody says that this sudden change in operations was dramatic. Madness, really, in the very beginning, like it, uh, to stand up those centers right away to have mobile distributions and wondering how many people would come out in their vehicles. And within the first couple of weeks, once word really started to spread, there was one report that one of our largest mobile distributions had a line of cars that was four miles long. Four miles long. But Jody says it actually hasn't been easy reaching the people who need help most. Well, I think reaching vulnerable populations has become even more difficult. Seniors are a vulnerable population during the crisis, but they were a vulnerable population for us before the crisis. And being able to identify and find and provide an appropriate intervention for seniors during this time has been particularly difficult. We run congregate meals for seniors, and we immediately had to stop those in mid-March. They also found a new hard-to-reach population. We found that our community had kind of left out, I guess, a food solution for 
people who were COVID positive. We thought that the health department, because they knew who was COVID positive, were helping them with food to make sure that they stayed quarantined. That was not the case. And they actually were referring patients to us, to the food bank. And we never ask people if they're COVID positive, but we only had home delivery for seniors. We didn't have home delivery for people that were COVID positive. So once we, our community knew that this was an issue, they really rallied around together and we were able to find several solutions for them. So why is this pandemic causing so many to struggle with food insecurity? Well, Jody says part of the reason is that when the pandemic came along, Communities in her region and really all over the country were still not fully recovered from the economic hits they took in the Great Recession. We were still experiencing food insecurity that was higher than 2010. And people would say, well, things are definitely better because people are back to work and unemployment is low. And that is true. And unemployment is a factor in food insecurity, but it is not the only factor. A lot of people in Las Vegas went back to jobs that were less pay than they had in 2009 or before. And so our median household incomes were still below what they were back 10 years before. So in Nevada, even though the economy was strong, people didn't have the economic security to take the financial shocks that have come along with the pandemic. Even though we were coming out of the recession, we were already at a place where we were on the cusp of that same kind of emergency just taking a hold of those families because they didn't have the funds or equity or savings to be able to help withstand short bouts of unemployment or being able to cover certain debts if they were only living on unemployment wages. Elaine Waxman says this is true throughout the country. We just got back to pre-recession levels of food insecurity in 2018. So that took about 10 years for us to recover from the huge spike we saw at the beginning of the recession, where we had more than 40 million, almost 50 million people at one point identifying as food insecure. And this is important to consider when we think about the long-term effects of the pandemic and what to expect going forward. In terms of things that we can learn from the Great Recession, we learned that it took a decade to get back to, quote, normal, right? And so I don't think we fully understand what this recovery is going to look like, but I think we should expect it to be a very long haul. And so food banks are incredibly important now, but ultimately they're not built to support a nation in crisis for the long haul. Food banks are designed initially really for emergency response, and they're very good at it. And every year we are tested in our ability to provide a very high level of response in a short period of time because of hurricanes and wildfires and other very sort of localized or regional events. We've never had a scenario in modern times where you had a disaster going on in all 50 states. So what should policymakers and society be thinking about now to address the challenges of food insecurity in the long term? One place to look is SNAP, the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program that helps individuals and families buy the food they need for good health. It's part of our broader safety net. We learned a lot from the Great Recession. So we learned, for example, that boosting SNAP benefits above and beyond what we currently offer 
makes a difference. One of the things that people have been calling for is an increase in the maximum benefit, the overall package of SNAP benefits. And this was, in fact, done during the Great Recession. And research looking back showed that it was a very important buffer for food insecurity and poverty. Boosting SNAP benefits has a positive impact, not just for an individual household in terms of their own food insecurity, but also for the community. In times of of economic distress, SNAP functions like a stimulus. So because people get those benefits and they spend them immediately and they spend them in the local food economy. And so generally the return on a dollar of SNAP is estimated to be about $1.80. So that's important in realizing that we shouldn't talk about SNAP as if it's a drain on the economy. It's absolutely taking us in the opposite direction as a boost. In order to ease food insecurity, Elaine says it will be important for us to get SNAP and other benefits to people as easily as possible. An emerging innovation that we should be watching, you know, that could be promising, but I think we don't quite know what the challenges are yet. And that is something called pandemic EBT or pandemic electronic benefits transfer. And this was something that was originally conceived of during the H1N1 outbreak, but never really implemented because, you know, that subsided pretty quickly. So the idea is to replace school meals if kids are out on a, for a school closure for, for some time, is to give families the equivalent value of those school meals on an EBT card that they can then purchase for themselves in groceries. And this is appealing for a number of reasons. It gives families more resources, more control over what they need to to get. Right now, neither food pantries or schools can necessarily really accommodate all of the food allergies, intolerances, preferences that households would have. And so it really allows you to to more adequately meet your family's needs. And Elaine points to other policies that will be critical to help families attain economic stability. You know, something else we learned from the Great Recession that's not specific to SNAP, but very germane to addressing food insecurity is that there was an investment by a lot of states in temporary subsidized jobs just to get people back working in whatever capacity possible. And I think that's also going to be important because some people aren't going to have jobs to come back to or their jobs are going to, you know, maybe have reduced hours or, or intermittent disruption. And so I think We learned that government could do that effectively and make a difference in terms of employment for low-income individuals and particularly people with employment barriers. And that's going to be an important part of just making sure that people have the ability to put food on the table with their own resources whenever possible. As stay-at-home orders are lifted and states are moving back towards phased reopening, Jody is concerned that Nevada might not bounce back quickly when the pandemic subsides. More than three in seven people in Nevada now are unemployed. And even though our state is moving toward a slow reopening and people will start slowly going back to their places of employment, we know that that will not be the case for so many more than were unemployed before or who were already struggling to get enough food to lead a healthy, active life and have enough nutrition for themselves and their families. On the other hand, she feels true hope and appreciation from what she's seen from her community. Here's what keeps her going during this unprecedented time. 
what gives me hope, I think, is still the the sense of community that I mentioned that we have here in Southern Nevada that continues to inspire me. So many people that want to come and help and volunteer. We have people every day that are calling the food bank asking if they can make masks for our staff and for our volunteers. And that is so inspiring. There are just so many people who want to help in the way that best fits the way that they can help. And that is just such a wonderful, wonderful experience that our community really cares about everyone else. And even in the midst of this crisis are thinking about their neighbors and what they can do to help. And that's wonderful. As always, we'll close with some key takeaways. Here are three things to remember. One, Food insecurity represents both family-level crises and a public health crisis. It's related to poor health outcomes in children and adults, so to be factored into the larger conversation about how we maintain the health of a community for the short and long term. Two, food banks have been a critical frontline response to the pandemic and need more support to meet the demand of food insecure people. And three, Though food banks are doing incredible work, overall, we need a stronger safety net to feed America and support families during a pandemic. Policymakers should be considering different ways to respond to their needs in this new world. So that's our show. Big thank you to Jody Tyson and Elaine Waxman. You can read more from Elaine and learn about the Three Square Food Bank on our show notes page at www.urban.org slash critical value. Big thank you to producers Jacinth Jones and Katie Smith. And of course, thanks as always to our sound editor, Riley Byrne from podigy.co. That's P-O-D-I-G-Y dot C-O. Our music is by Moby. On behalf of the Critical Value team and my two kids who are now co-producers. I hope you enjoyed the podcast and I wish you like all of the podcasts we um, send to you. The end. I hope you enjoyed this podcast, and if you really liked it, you can put a five star on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs>